Welcome to the Making of the Islamic World. I'm Chris Grayton. If you're hearing this through the Ottoman History Podcast website, the Making of the Islamic World is a series of podcasts intended for the university classroom. With each episode, we provide a bibliography of readings associated with the topic at hand, as well as other readings and activities great for group discussion or for simply exploring on your own. In the first installment of this series, we're going to talk about Islamic law and how scholars studying the early centuries of Islam today are using that history to rethink Islamic law in our own present. The main takeaway of this podcast for students should be that the term Islamic law does not refer to a static, rigid legal code, but rather an area of study that has been the site of interpretation and debate throughout history. In the process of exploring a little bit about that history, we'll address broader questions about how the Islamic world is studied and represented today. One of the things that I sensed as an undergrad in particular, you know, in studying about Islam, was an endless amount of apology around Islam and Muslims, right? I often felt... Uh, like, you know, both the professor who was teaching this material as well as, you know, the the Muslim, right? So when you're in this class around Islam and if you're a Muslim, then you immediately sort of, you know, get identified, right, as the representative of, you know, X thing. And there was just, an, you know, very much a classroom dynamic of feeling the need to apologize for, you know, Islam being like this or Islam being like that, conversations, uh, you know, that I had in class discussions about uh, you know, why does Islam hate gay people? And the only way to have that conversation was to either double down, which some people did, or to apologize. And so for me, I think a lot about the, the you know, the context of the U.S. has changed over the years that leads to very different kinds of conversations. Certainly, I mean, I was in my junior year when 9-11 happened, and the conversation around Islam and Muslims has, or the kind of conversations that Muslims are having around Islam Right, has changed drastically in some ways. But what I try to do in my own classroom is really step away from a classroom dynamic where students feel that we are here to interrogate Islam and Muslims and to really get them to think about the fact that what we are here to interrogate is actually you and your perceptions rather than trying to somehow measure Islam and Muslims up to something. And if we are doing that work, let's have a conversation about what that standard is and who sets it. Not to necessarily disagree on whether or not that standard is quote unquote the right one, but to understand the power dynamics of who gets to set standards and call people to account and who feel like they constantly have to be held to account for and have to constantly prove that they are civilized, quote unquote, civilized enough or quote unquote, you know, progressive enough. So so for me, I think because of my own sort of experiences, this has been a really important thing in the classroom environment that I create is to make it a space where the educational and transformative work that's happening is the students coming to a place of self-reflection on their own self and their own location rather than this particular object of of study and whether it can measure up to what it is that they expect it to be. Sadia Yaqub is a professor of religion at Williams College. We chatted over Zoom about some of her approaches to teaching and researching the history of Islamic law. Yaqub and I went to college around the same time, when the 9-11 attacks and the war on terror loomed large in campus debates about Islam. We both came away sharing the conviction 
that the work of self-reflection and interrogation of the present in the history classroom is more important at the end of the day than memorization of dates and names or grasping esoteric academic debates. Though we do a little bit of both, obviously. Because what brought us to the subject in different ways was questions about our own communities, about American society, about ourselves. I think history is a great place for exploring those questions about the present. I wanted to start off this series on that note because setting aside what we think we know about the past will be much more important than the pursuit of clear and definitive narratives about it. Some of the most innovative research on Islamic law and what it can be today is founded on a simple, open-minded revisitation of the early Islamic past. We'll return to Sadia Yaqub and the group of scholars she belongs to who are bringing a feminist approach to the center of historical discussion of Islamic law. But first, I want to start off with a story that should be compelling, whether you're an accomplished scholar of Islamic law, a student just wading into the topic, or someone sort of in between, like me. Intasar Rub is a professor of law, a professor of history, and the faculty director of the program in Islamic law at Harvard Law School. She holds a JD and a PhD in history, and she also has Sharia source, an online portal designed to provide universal access to the world's information on Islamic law and history. Here she is talking about her book entitled Doubt in Islamic Law at the Harvard Law School Library in 2015. This is a story that purportedly dates back to the very earliest period of Islamic history, uh, sometime in the 7th century, Medina, which is in modern-day Saudi Arabia. And the story goes like this. There was a man who was caught in, in the ruins of the Medina town. And so there was, a young, there was a patrol, like a police force, out patrolling, and they come across this man in the ruins, and he's standing over a dead body with blood on the ground and a blood-stained knife in his hands. So they arrest him, and the man immediately confesses as well and, and confessed again when they brought him before Ali, the cousin of Muhammad the prophet, he was presiding over Medina in his capacity as the caliph. He was the fourth caliph. And he was also, in the Shi'i context, considered the first imam, the first legitimate successor of Muhammad. So he's, he's authorized to deal with criminal cases along all of, these, all of these lines of authority. And so the man confessed before him and according to the law of retaliation called Qisas, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, the punishment was the death penalty, life for a life. But right then, another man came up to Ali in this this trial and said, don't kill him, I did it. And then Ali looked at the man who was first arrested incredulously, and he said, well, I mean, what happened? Uh, and the man said, well, well, yes, I didn't do it. And the second man said, well, I killed the man and then I, I fled. And Ali asked the first man, well, what made you confess to something that you didn't actually do? And that man said, well, I thought you'd never believe me when it just seemed so uh, clear cut that I must have been the perpetrator. But what actually happened is that I was a butcher. I'm a butcher. I had just slaughtered a cow And then I went into the nearby ruins to relieve myself. I still had my knife in hand. I saw this man who was dead, and I stood over him in concern. And it was at that point that the patrolman 
came and arrested me. And according to the story, Ali didn't punish either of the men with death. This is a fascinating legal story. A man is seemingly caught red-handed, and he confesses, but then it turns out that confession was false when a second man comes forward to confess to the murder. Yet neither one receives due punishment according to the mandate of the law. It's not what you would expect. So what purpose did such a story serve in the early Islamic community? This is a case that's illustrative of dozens of cases that one finds attributed to the early Islamic period. Apocryphal, though they might be, they still relate to or attributed to that early period and are considered canonical in both Sunni and Shi'i texts. And the story represents doubt in Islamic law, in Islamic criminal law, of three types. Uh, First of all, there was factual doubt. It wasn't clear from the confession of the first man or the confession of the second man which story should be believed, and there were no witnesses. The evidence here was questionable and contradictory at best. But then there was also legal doubt. So for the rule of qisas or retaliation to apply, it requires intentional homicide. Otherwise, a fine of financial compensation is, or, or some other lesser punishment is more typical. But there was legal doubt as to whether that version of the law had been violated, that there had been an intentional homicide or murder committed in order to trigger that rule. And then finally, there was what I call moral doubt about the propriety of punishment, uh, particularly under these these circumstances where it couldn't be, uh, with stakes being so high and Ali unable to ascertain the probity of the the testimony or what actually happened. This this results in him eventually letting both men go without the death penalty or or with some lesser punishment. And so this case and these three types of doubt, factual, legal, and moral doubt, end up becoming a part very early on of Islamic legal history or Islamic criminal law particularly of the judicial procedures that don't find their way otherwise into the texts of early Islamic law. First, it was a matter of judicial practice where judges or the records show that judges typically applied uh, this law of doubt in actual cases when, when they came before them, even though the law on the books was pretty harsh. If a thief steals, the law says that his hand is to be, to be cut off. If, a, if someone murders, the law says that the death penalty is the result. But what you saw in practice was something that ends up being almost the opposite of that, that there's no recorded instance of the death penalty by witness testimony being imposed in Islamic law courts from the early period, and one might even stretch that, that farther. And similarly, there are very few instances of some of the other punishments being uh, applied. And that has to do with this prevalent judicial practice that recognized doubt, that any doubt that came along the lines of factual, legal, or moral doubt was to cause a judge to stay the head punishment, the fixed punishment specified by the text in Islamic law, 
and perhaps to apply some lesser punishment or no punishment at all. So in this way, the rule of doubt became a legal canon, and it was expressed as a phrase, whenever there is doubt, don't impose the punishment or avoid criminal punishments in cases of doubt. This legal canon, which was a matter of general judicial practice, judicial procedure, then became a text uh, around the fourth century after, the, after Muhammad's advent, so the 10th or 11th century of the Common Era. And Muslim jurists started to say that it wasn't just a matter of judicial practice. This was actually required as a matter of Islamic law, that it was so prevalent and it made so much sense as a complement to the harsh substantive rules that it must have been a prophetic directive directly. And so they actually claimed that it was a prophetic statement, a hadith, avoid criminal punishments in cases of doubt. Even though no one said that in the first three centuries, by the fourth century, pretty much every Muslim jurist uh, held that this canon, uh, which was a matter of judicial practice, was also a prophetic directive. And then finally, there was the generalization of doubt, where this rule came to define Islamic criminal law itself to the point that each definition of a particular crime, like murder, like theft, would have as an element of the definition the absence of doubt. Rub's attention to practices is crucial. It's not just about what the law says about right and wrong or punishment. What jurisprudence says about standards of judgment matter just as much. And ignoring these procedural questions in the history of Islamic law and its development can have negative consequences. In Western scholarship, there was a long tradition of textual analysis in the study of Islam that reduced the complexity of debates and presented Islamic law as something more rigid than it was, no more accurate than if our own society was understood solely through the laws that are on the books today. Just Google weird laws in your state to see what I mean. Much of the new scholarship in Islamic studies throughout recent decades has been focused on challenging the simplistic and essentialized understanding of Islamic history received from the old tradition of studying Muslim societies in the West. But Rub's intervention is also relevant for thinking about Islamic law in the 21st century, where people, usually in places where European colonialism has greatly altered their legal codes, seek to return to what they see as a more authentic and Islamic legal tradition. It was doubt rather than certainty that pervaded Islamic law or Islamic criminal law. And I say that uh, in doubt rather than certainty because I think the current perception is that Islamic criminal law is a very uh, certain set of harsh crimes that must be punished. And I don't mean this as, as an outsider's view. I think it's a view in the Muslim world as well. There are 13 countries now that have Islamic criminal law have instituted Islamic criminal law codes. And what they typically do is go to an early Islamic law manual that lists the crimes and punishments that were specified, say, in the first three centuries. And looking at that list, all they get is the list of crime and punishments. They don't get the list of procedure and of doubt that goes along with it. Because remember, it wasn't until the fourth century, meaning the 10th or 11th century, that Muslim jurists began to talk about doubt as a prophetic directive. They didn't at that point fold the procedure back into the manuals of the first 
three centuries, which was the authoritative period. You might think of it as the, fa- the long founding period of Islamic law. So now modern countries or, or modern uh, Islamist politicians who are keen on demonstrating how Islamic they are go back to these early manuals that have all of the text, none of the procedure, and institute Islamic criminal law codes based on that text and they exclude procedure. Um, and that's what I, I see when I look at the codes, for example, of Nigeria, of Afghanistan, of Sudan. These comments by Intisar Rub demonstrate how what we know as Islamic law is the history of interpretation and practice. How we understand that history shapes how people think about Islamic law today. But when we say we're studying Islamic law, what exactly are we even talking about? In order to lay out some of the basic issues, I talked to my colleague Joshua White. He studies the history of Islamic law with a focus on the Ottoman Mediterranean, and he's the regular instructor in University of Virginia's history survey of the Middle East and North Africa, years 500 to 1500. We discuss the basic terms and features one must understand to approach the question of what exactly Islamic law is. When people use, at least in English, the, the words Islamic law, they're often referring to a couple different things. We perhaps sometimes are accustomed to thinking of law as like a code, right? The U.S. code. There is no code of Sharia. It doesn't exist. Sharia, which is the term that many people are familiar with, is Islamic law writ large, right? This is all-encompassing. This is God's law. It is the way or path. It's everything. But jurisprudence, fiqh, is usually what we're talking about when we're talking about law, because if Sharia is God's law, uh, jurisprudence is a result of humans trying to expound on what that law is, trying to determine what we are supposed to do, what we are not supposed to do, the answers to all the questions that a Muslim might face in life. And it's from there, then, then we get to the question, well, how do you do that? Right? And that's been a uh, source of contention over the centuries. So then we get really to the question, all right, so what are the, the sources of law, the, the methods of jurisprudence, usul al-fiqh? And these are several different things, and these are, of course, subject to contention too, right? First and foremost is the Qur'an. After that, we get to the sunnah, right? The sunnah of whom? The sunnah of the Prophet, um, certainly, the practice that is what he did, how he did it, but not just of the Prophet. In some instances, we might also include the Sunnah of the companions of the Prophet, those who lived in, and, and worked and ate and, and fought with him. We can include two for, for Shi Muslims in particular, um, Ali and his family, and the practices of the imams within that community, or the, the explicit communities within um, Shiite Islam. And the way in which we might get at what the Sunnah is, is through the tradition of Hadith, traditions, uh, sayings attributed to the Prophet, which have to be attested through a chain of transmission. So-and-so told so-and-so told so-and-so told so-and-so told so-and-so that he heard that Muhammad said X. And we get a whole science to try to determine which of these are actually valid. So the Hadith themselves are not Sunnah, but they help us get to Sunnah. All right. So... We have the Quran, we have the Sunnah, and then it starts to get a little bit more complicated because we begin to move away from those things that perhaps might give us more explicit answers and things that then rely more and more on jurists and on the community. So next up is the consensus of the community. Well, who's included in the community is one of the big questions here then. But 
there is this idea fundamentally that the community will never agree on an error. And so the consensus of the community, the consensus of the community of Muslims or of Sunni Muslims, depending on which community we're talking about, which school of Islamic jurisprudence we're talking about, um, can be a valid source of law. But so too can then be kind of customary law or general practice be a, a valid source of law, um, a source of consensus. Then we get into uh, analogical reasoning. If we have a concrete set of guidance in one area, say, what to do when your desert caravan gets uh, attacked and then you're trying to determine who owns what afterwards or something like that. Um, maybe you have something that you know is the answer to that question, but you're not certain what to do in a similar situation at sea. You might look to that case on land as being analogous and use that to answer the question of how should this play out. And then finally, um, for those jurists most expert, we could include the considered opinion of the jurist. But you have to then be pretty certain that this jurist has the capacity to exercise independent legal reasoning each had to do that. Because of ambiguities and variation in the sources for jurisprudence, there was a wide degree of interpretation involved in trying to understand Islamic law. But what was the extent of the divergence? To what degree did different scholars disagree? Well, and 95% of the time, probably they don't. Um, so, I mean, we can speak now within Sunni Islam of there being four canonical schools of Islamic jurisprudence. But it's important to recognize that, for one thing, there were once more, and that the eponymous founders of these schools, the Hanafi school founded by Abu Hanifa, or the Maliki school founded by Malik ibn Anas, uh, the Shafi'i school, the Hanbali school, weren't actually necessarily really founded by their founders, but rather by their disciples. Um, there's a lot of intellectual exchange going back and forth um, of students in these early centuries studying with people in different cities that were famed to have people learning, going to study circles at mosques and listening to lectures of this person and then maybe traveling somewhere else and uh, going to lectures of that person. So our very first kind of founder of a school, or at least a person who has a school named after him, is Abu Hanifa who dies in uh, the late 760s. He was based in Iraq. His disciples are the ones who kind of first build a major school of thought surrounding the opinions of their master. And their students are the ones who then go forward. So the Shafi'i school, Imam Shafi'i had been a student of one of Abu Hanifa's students and a student um, of Malik and ultimately came up with on his own advancements that took them in a different direction, such that his students really could be said to belong to a completely new school, but one which, in many of its particulars, was very similar to the others. So where do they end up disagreeing and how do they differ? It's really when we get to those questions for which neither the Quran nor the Sunnah offers us um, an easy answer, and then it's a question of which tools within the School of Jurisprudence are available to answer the question and how they might be employed. Now, it would be generally accepted that as long as one of the schools comes to an agreement on something, is any one of those you follow is valid. So what does this mean then later on when we get to the point where all four schools are, are quite established and have generations of scholars and scholarly product to refer back to? In time, uh, scholars of law no longer are 
returning to the sources of jurisprudence to answer questions. They're returning to the works of earlier scholars to answer those questions. They're operating within their school, their methheb, to answer those questions. And again, most of the cases, any scholar from any school of jurisprudence will come to the same conclusion. And the differences in the details, both how they got there in some instances and the small results. Now, because in many instances, um, certainly the jurists themselves, but also uh, the qadis, the judges, are not necessarily state appointees or salaried by the state. In, in kind of personal law matters, people might choose which one of these guys to go to. Do I want to go to the Hanafi qadi? Do I want to go to the Shafi'i qadi? Based on the kinds of questions they're dealing with. If you're a woman and your husband was lost decades ago, you don't know if he's alive or dead, you don't know what happened to him, and you would like to remarry the Hanafi school isn't going to let you do that until you know he's dead. Other schools, though, might be a little bit more forgiving about at what moment can you say, he's probably dead. And then you can operate from that basis. So what we call this is sort of form shopping, right? And and this becomes a feature of much of kind of the medieval Islamic world and, and its you know, legal functioning. So let's talk about it in practice. Uh, in particular, I want to talk about three figures who come up time and again in the history of Islamic law across different times and places. That's the figure of the jurist or the faqih, the scholar who's undertaking you know, inquiry into interpretation of the law. Then there's the qadi who presides in the court, more of the um, application of um, legal principles to specific cases. And then uh, the figure of the mufti who issues opinions based on questions. Of course, I've simplified it quite a bit. These are often the same person. But can you explain more about what Islamic law looked like in practice? Sure. So, uh, as, as you say, oftentimes we could be talking about the same person. There are not necessarily hard and fast lines between these roles, but there are in terms of what they produce, you know, what their work product is and for whom it, it is intended Recalling the fact that uh, the Sharia is God's law and is all-encompassing, is the legal scholar might spend a lot of time thinking about you know theoretical questions or other concerns that have little to do with kind of substantive law or about answering the questions of everyday Muslims um, and are really are sometimes uh, I don't want to say they're mundane or arcane, but they are the matters that occupy scholars um, and the, the, the debates that they may have with one another might not have much, if any, impact on the everyday lives of believers or non-Muslims, for that matter, uh, in, in their polities. It is very different for uh, when we speak about the Qadi or the Mufti. Uh, let's deal with the Mufti first. So a Mufti is simply a, a, a person who has uh, sufficient learning and respect within the community uh, that he is considered to be able to offer his legal opinions. And he does that by offering fatwas. A fatwa is a non-binding legal opinion offered by a qualified jurist. That is a mufti. So in some instances and in some places, the mufti might receive some sort of official recognition, but he also might be the local elder most respected for his knowledge. And so both Muslims and non-Muslims might come to him with their questions or their problems and ask for his opinion. And the resulting opinion of fatwa might be a few lines, it might be 100 pages. It is not binding. No one has to follow it in, in kind of strictly legal terms. But it is, you know, it's effectively the equivalent of the rabbinic responsum. And it's 
the one of the ways in which you know, new legal principles are developed and expounded upon it becomes a you know a fundamental vehicle for setting new precedents. This is in marked contrast to the way in which qadis work. Qadis hear cases and they decide them, but their decisions are not binding legal precedents. And I mention this because, of course, in the United States, this legal system, uh, the opinions of courts form binding legal precedents. In particular, the Supreme Court, as we always think about this or that precedent, and at least in theory, those are supposed to be binding uh, upon lower courts. That is not the case here. Right, so we have a situation in which the non-binding legal opinions are the ones that set legal precedents that should determine how later judges should act, but the decisions of judges are one-off. They hear the case, they decide it usually summarily based on the evidence provided to them. Now, the Qadi, again, might be, usually was a state appointee. The, the role that he played in society varies over time and space, but in some instances, the local Qadi is, a, is effectively rolled into one. A magistrate, the judge, the census taker, the, the sheriff, and the local administrator, all rolled into one. Um, a person with substantial local power who may or may not be uh, native to the region in which he's operating. We have, uh, historically speaking, real ambivalence within the scholarly community about taking on roles like being Qadi. Um, a lot of our most famous jurists want very little, if anything, to do with the exercise of political power. And we end up getting to a kind of a situation of detente where the authorities, by receiving the support of the scholars, allow the scholars to do their thing more or less unmolested. And so the question of kind of who is actually worthy of being called a scholar, whose opinions are worth listening to, is, is entirely decided by the scholars themselves. They form their own kind of corporate body. They make their own decisions, really rather independently of the efforts, if any, of the state to control them. And that's kind of the deal that they make fairly early on. So in the early centuries of Islamic history, what is the role of the state in Islamic law? In some respects, it's fairly limited. Um, certainly, the, the, the state is a term, of course, that we are imposing on, on the past here. It is the role, certainly, of the caliph to make sure that the rule of the Muslims is upheld and that you know, it is safe for them to continue to do so. They create... You know, the opportunity for the scholars to do what they do. In the early centuries, the state plays a fairly limited role in legal interpretation. For the most part, the caliphs do fairly little legislating of their own. They are themselves not considered to be, uh, in their pronouncements really, people who can create law. This will change going forward with the influence of the Mongols and their successors. Uh, but at least in the early centuries, the state's role in producing law is comparatively limited, um, and the attempts, sporadic though they were, to change that dynamic were fiercely resisted by the scholars writ large and their supporters. So in the creation and consolidation of Islamic legal traditions over those early centuries, you see that polities with Muslim rulers, Islamic polities, are both governing 
in many cases, majority non-Muslim populations, but also, of course, are running up against the pre-existing legal traditions in areas of Muslim rule. Those might be Christian, Jewish, Zoroastrian legal traditions. They might also be forms of local custom that are upheld through different community structures and, and, and tribal or whatever you might call them. I guess there's a two-part question here. One, how, how did the uh, early uh, Islamic polities negotiate this relationship with other legal traditions? And secondly, to what extent was and is Islamic law a relevant subject or a meaningful subject for non-Muslims uh, living in such polities? I mean, Islamic legal structures develop pretty pretty much from the beginning, um, the ability to, de- to create a space for pre-existing legal traditions and local practice, right? There's a lot of kind of willingness to accept for, in practical senses, in the practical sense at least, uh, c- the customary practice of a particular area or region so long as it doesn't run up against those things which are commanded and, and you know, considered to be necessary. Uh, likewise, you can pretty much sum up the attitude of the early Islamic polities and the later ones too with regards to the non-Muslims that they came to rule as pay your taxes, mind your business. Which is to say, you know, for most of these early centuries, right, Muslims are, are, are entirely outnumbered and that will remain true for centuries. So long as those communities continued to pay the taxes asked of them, they were permitted to maintain their own uh, communal legal and religious structures. And so Jews or Christians within their community could manage their own divorces, their own inheritance. Many instances deal with matters that we would consider criminal, but which were still traditionally considered kind of personal matters. So that up, into, up to and including murder even sometimes can be staying entirely within the realm of those communities. Where this changes, though, is in intercommunal matters, right? So that if you have a dispute between a Muslim and a Christian or a Christian and a Jew, the only forum that is competent to hear those disputes is the court of the Qadi. And so what we find is even in areas where there is little or almost no Muslim settlement, uh, we will encounter Muslims and Christians and Jews on their own making use of the Qadi. In any sort of mixed case, that's going to be true. And that in many instances, that kind of reliability and, and predictability um, of legal practice is welcome so that you will see instances in which people might have been able to maintain a case within their own community, but will choose to register their transactions. We're not even talking about anything criminal here or even in a complaint. They'll just choose to register their transactions with uh, their local qadi because that way it will be within a forum that kind of all acknowledge as, as, as being dominant. This might seem like a basic point at this stage, but Islamic law and theology are very different things. Theology is the study of religious belief. Muslim scholars don't totally agree on that either, but they generally agree that Islam should inform social norms and legal practices. And that's where Islamic law comes in. It's a whole host of scholarly traditions and social institutions informed by Islam that have both ethical and practical functions. If you read some of the important sources for Islamic law, the Qur'an, the Hadith, and writings of major scholars in the dominant schools of jurisprudence, you'll find that Islamic law is quite expansive. 
it can be used to think through virtually any matter. Uh, thanks for talking to me tonight. Yeah, no problem, dude. Sorry, it's you know, it's in my it's in my basement, so it's not. Uh, <laughs> but this is this is the only space we have these days. Yeah, it's kind of funny that it's easier for us to meet over Zoom, even though we're in the same city right now. I know. Fahad Bishara studies the economic history of the Islamic world. He teaches a history survey at University of Virginia on that very subject that stretches from the beginnings of Islam into the modern period. Islamic law has always had a lot to say about trade and commerce, and with the spread of Islam, Islamic frameworks for transactions helped fuel trans-regional trade. There's a field within jurisprudence that recognizes sort of customary practice as a source of law. Um, and especially in the field of mercantile practice, there's a lot of sort of discourse in these texts about these are the things that merchants do. And so there's a recognition that there's a world of law that exists outside of the sort of the boundaries of revealed law, uh, but that jurists have to sort of contend with and bring into the fold anyways. There's never a really sort of clear distinction between what is a very sort of firmly in the box of Islamic law and what's outside of it, especially from the perspective of what's outside of it. Because what's outside of it, especially in the field of sort of commercial contracting, these are people who are drawing up contracts and they're taking them to Muslim legal institutions. And so these contracts have to look a certain way anyways, right? And so there's a constant sort of back and forth between... Uh, Muslim sort of legal consumers, for lack of a better term, and the legal service providers. And there's always this sort of attempt to clothe and reclothe practices in the sort of garb of Islamic law. And what Islamic law itself is, is a very sort of malleable and sort of stretchy discourse that is actually pretty capacious. It's not like Muslim jurists have sort of come up with the like standard set menu of different sorts of contracts and different sorts of institutions, and that's all it can be. They're constantly encountering new institutions, new sorts of practices, and they're trying to find a way of bringing them into the fold of what they consider to be law. That's the only law that they, they can acknowledge is, is Islamic law, right? So, you know, instead of thinking of Islamic law as a, a box with sort of hard sides which in which you sort of you can peer in and you can say ah that's definitely islamic law and there are all these things that are outside of it we might think of it as a sort of a more porous field that all sorts of different institutions and practices pass through and become sort of renamed and reinvented as being islamic and this happens over the course of centuries with different sorts of encounters so what exactly did islamic commercial law look like Commercial law is probably one of the few fields of Islamic law, one of the few sort of subcategories of Islamic law, for which it, it's quite clear that there's no like sort of Muslim provenance, so to speak, right? Even the like the very uh, sort of central and, and well-known institutions of commerce, say like the mudaraba, which is a commercial arrangement by which you have, you know, you have two parties to the arrangement. You have the investor and you have the partner who contributes the labor, and they join together. It's a sort of a joining together of labor and capital for a particular enterprise, and then they split up profits between them. And this is like the uh, standard bearer for all of like Muslim commercial law. Everybody always makes reference to the mudaraba. 
but we know that the mudaraba is a is a pre-islamic arrangement it's not it's not an islamic uh, invention and in fact i would say that there are very few uh, sorts of contracts that are islamic inventions uh, at all and so there is muslim commercial practice and then there's this constant attempt by uh, by Muslim jurists to bring that field of commercial practice into the realm of the revealed law, to anchor it in a moral framework, so to speak, right? To, to make it sort of palatable uh, in an Islamic legal tradition. And from very early on, Muslim jurists are thinking very deeply about commerce. Commerce is actually quite central to how Muslim jurists envision contracting in the Islamic world more generally. Like the sales contract is the standard template for all other contracts uh, in Islamic law. When you pick up any book of jurisprudence, the longest chapter is always going to be the chapter on sales uh, because the sales chapter becomes the template for the sort of, the sales contract becomes a template for the loan contract, becomes a template for the marriage contract, becomes a template for for all sorts of different uh, forms of contracting. And insofar as there is like a theory of contract in Islamic law, and there isn't like a theory, a sort of a general theory of contract, but insofar as there is one, uh, the sales contract is it. That's where like all of the, the thinking the thinking originates. And so Muslim jurists from very early on recognize that there's a world of commerce around them. There's a world in which wealth is being generated and they they expend a lot of energy to thinking about how they can tether that wealth creation in a moral framework because you know the prophet the prophet muhammad of course was a merchant and this is one of the few aspects of the prophet's life that like we actually are it's quite clear that this is true there's like agreement in all of the sources that muhammad was a merchant and uh while the the prophet uh didn't frown upon the uh, pursuit of wealth through commerce in a way that, in the way that like say like thinkers in the classics did like aristotle or plato didn't, didn't think much about uh you know commerce as a source of wealth you know for them wealth was in the land but he was still quite suspicious about the ways in which people pursued that sort of wealth whether the pursuit of wealth was like a, a viable end in and of itself um but also what you did with that wealth, right? How you how you sort of uh, spent that wealth after you've accumulated it. So you have all of these these hadiths of the Prophet that discuss wealth and what to do with wealth. But then also you have in the Quran itself the revealed word of God, and especially in the Surah Al-Baqarah, you have lots of verses devoted to uh, wealth and wealth accumulation and contracts and writing down of contracts and all these things. So it's very clear that wealth and commerce are sort of quite central to the Muslim legal episteme from the from the outset. It's quite central to the formation of of Islamic law. Access to a a sort of menu of contracts, however sort of flexible and malleable that menu of contracts may have been, that was uh, that was important for sort of structuring economic life in all sorts of different ways. And you can see from the sorts of contracts that Muslim jurists are talking about, you can see all of the different arenas of economic life that they're concerned with, that they're that they're sort of engaging with in different ways. There's like you know, there's agriculture, sharecropping, there's that sort of the craft sector, there's commercial exchange. So one might say that the commitment to furnishing a legal framework for commercial activity 
in and of itself is generative of of commerce and here's the the reasoning that underpins that commerce and sort of production and all sorts of different uh, all these different aspects of economic life are sort of inherently risky one doesn't know what the outcome of any of these things is going to be there's no reason why people would uh you know there's nothing inherent in people that makes them want to join together in any enterprise, an agrarian enterprise or a commercial enterprise. Or maybe there is, but there are all sorts of uncertainties. There are all sorts of risks. There are all sorts of things, you know, what what uh, economists would call transaction costs, right? Like these uncertainties surrounding the transaction that actually, you know, as these transaction costs mount, or if these transaction costs mount, they're inhibitive to commerce. And the fact that we have all of these different contracts suggests that there is greater certainty that people have, right? That people are able to to more confidently uh, enter into these different arrangements because they know what all of the rules are. All of these things are spelled out. And not only are they spelled out, they're enshrined in law. And there are legal institutions whose task it is to enforce and uphold uh, uphold those arrangements. So that's one part of it, right? These are the ways in which sort of the law... A secure legal framework, a secure sort of framework for property rights, can generate uh, economic activity in and of itself. The other aspect of that is, of course, the um, the sort of the scale and scope of it. And so, as these Muslim empires are spreading, as the Muslim polity is spreading in its different forms, this uh, this legal system sort of spreads alongside it, right? Uh, even if you, you know, godly courts might look slightly different depending on where you are. Uh, of course, like Muslim practice itself looks very different depending on where you are in the Islamic world. But there are common reference points, right? And there are texts that are circulating around this world such that a merchant in, say, like Sindh and a merchant in Cairo can approach one another and contract in a sort of mutually intelligible way. These are not two separate legal systems, right? And so as the Islamic world spreads, and of course under the Umayyads, you have an Islamic world that's all the way from like, uh, you know, the Western Mediterranean uh, into the Indian Ocean world, uh, you have this world of merchants and goods and transactions that are all taking place under a more or less sort of similar framework, right? It's not a singular framework because it can't possibly be singular. There's variation in legal practice all around the world. But there are common reference points. There's um, common common forms of contracting, one might say, such that uh, one, you know, a merchant from one place and a merchant from another can do business in a way that's comprehensible to both. They share a legal grammar, so to speak, right? And that is, of course, important for facilitating transregional commerce. I should say that, you know, the evidence, like the empirical evidence for this is actually kind of slim, especially for the early period. We just don't have the kind of evidence to make the case that these people actually did business with one another in that Islamic legal framework and what that looked like, right? We, well, you say from, you know, for the early period, we don't have a lot of empirical evidence. But when you say early period, I guess you don't mean like certainly by the medieval period, by the 11th, 12th century, there are materials that we can consult well before, say, like the 18th, 19th century, the, the more modern period. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. When I say the early period, I'm talking about like the 7th century and the 8th century. Uh, you know, by the time we get to like even the late 10th century, 
um, the the uh, available evidence sort of ticks up. And then, of course, by the 11th century with the Geniza materials, it, it expands dramatically. And what what that archive tells us, the, the Geniza collection, it illuminates the extent to which even non-Muslims were willing uh, and able to draw on this well of Muslim contracts to uh, structure their world of transregional trade. One of the things Fahad Bishar's own research has done is challenge the idea that Islamic law was simply incompatible with modern legal frameworks for finance and investment, in fact showing that Islamic law was quite critical to the making of the world economy. Thinking more about how new perspectives on the past inform our understanding of the present, I want to return to Sadia Yaqub and the growing body of scholarship furthering feminist approaches to the history of Islamic law. Yaqub's early interests concern the most basic step in developing those approaches, undoing the misconception that the scholar was necessarily a man. I, I really got interested in this question of female jurists when I was doing my master's and spent countless number of hours in the library going through all of these biographical dictionaries, right, that have these sort of entries on jurists and prominent jurists uh, of particular uh, time periods and found, uh, you know, a number of women jurists in across the different legal schools. And uh, the ones that really stood out to me, a jurist uh, by the name of Fatma Asamar Qandi. Uh, she was a 12th century uh, uh, female jurist. She was the daughter of a, a, a very well-known Hanafi jurist in the 12th century, Al-Addin Asamar Qandi. And her husband was the student of her father, uh, Al-Kasani or Al-Kashani. Both, so both of these men in her lives, her father and her husband, are really well-known, prominent jurists in the, in the Hanafi legal school. And from some of the kind of biographical literature, you know, that what we have been able to sort of draw out a picture of Fatma or Samarqandi is that, uh, you know, she was very knowledgeable of Islamic law and very much a, a jurist in her own right. I've heard other people talking about reports. I have not uh, been able to locate this myself. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, other people uh, who have read reports that talk about how, uh, you know, when Kasani would be sitting with his students, uh, he would periodically get up and, and, and leave and go home and, uh, and then come back. And, you know, at some point people asked him, you know, what's going on? Uh, and, uh, you know, and he was like, well, sometimes I get stumped at the questions that people are asking me. So I go and I ask my wife. Some of the biographical entries on her talk about how she actually issued fatawa, she, she issued legal opinions, but in, penned them in the name of her father and her husband. It, then there's also uh, another female jurist from the 14th century, Fatima bint Ayash, or known uh, more popularly as Fatima al-Baghdadiya. And, uh, you know, she's somebody who was a contemporary of Ibn Taymiyyah. Uh, and so a lot of his students who have biographical, biographical dictionaries have written about her. And, you know, amongst the different things that people have said about her, uh, one of the things that comes up is that, you know, whenever she was about to attend a study circle that Ibn Taymiyyah was uh, hosting, uh, he would describe that, you know, he was very nervous and would prepare uh, extra hard because he knew that she would come with questions that would be very perplexing, right? Uh, uh, and, and so he really felt the limits of his knowledge, right, in his interactions with her. She was also known for uh, giving, for sermonizing in, in, the, in the masjid, in the mosque, uh, and was known for climbing the mimbal 
to then, because she had such a large crowd that would come, she would climb the mimbar. And supposedly, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah felt really uncomfortable with this. He felt that this was inappropriate for her to do. Uh, and so decided that he was uh, going to, you know, tell her not to do this anymore, uh, but decided to sleep on it. And then says that, you know, in his sleep, he saw the prophet. The prophet came to him and said, she's a pious woman. Uh, and that was enough for him to let her be. And, and, and she also, she herself was a Hanbali. There's some of the biographical entries talk about a debate that she had uh, with uh, some of these well-known uh, Hanbali jurists of the time. And it's a really interesting entry in one of these biographical dictionaries. It basically gives us like bare bones details. It says, you know, along the lines of she had a debate with this other legal scholar on the issue of menstruation and she won out over in the debate. And then turns around and tells him, the reason I went out is because I know this topic of menstruation, not just in abstract knowledge, but also in practice. Part of what I've been trying to do with this project on female jurors is to really nuance the ways in which we talk about the involvement of women and particularly women jurors in the development of Islamic law. Because in contemporary conversations, you you know, there tend to be two responses. One is to say that, look, there are no female jurors. In fact, when I started doing my master's, this was one of the responses that I got was people saying, you know, I'm sorry to, you know, to break this to you, but there are no female jurors. You know, it's an odd investment in telling a story where men are the only producers of knowledge. But on the other hand, you have this contemporary discourse that because it is trying to create space for Muslim women now as actors in Islamic legal discourses, uh, whether as muftiyas or as uh, judges, it tends to tell a story where these women were not made marginal in the ways that I'm describing, right? It wants to tell the story where you had just, you know, both men and women who were creating the law. Uh, and therefore, there's no problem in women doing that today. But the reality is far more complex than that, right? The reality is that you had Fatma Samar Qadiyya, who was... Uh, you know, who clearly had, uh, you know, incredible prowess as a jurist. And yet she's writing Fatawa in the name of her husband and her father. And we have no extant uh, works of hers. Uh, there might be, you know, stuff that we read as things that Kasani and, uh, you know, Asamar Qandi said, but they're actually from her. That's an incredible uh, silencing, right? A making invisible of her as a female jurist, simply because she was a woman. For Yaqub, a feminist approach to Islamic law doesn't mean that women and gender should be the sole focus or be pigeonholed in some way. It means interrogating the totality of the history of Islamic law with gender at the center. You know, for me, the, the, the feminist um, scholarship on Islamic law is a really helpful way of thinking about the history of Islamic law in a way that gets us at questions that I think a lot of people who teach on Islamic legal history are interested in, but tend not to think about the scholarship that is focused on gender as doing that kind of work. Uh, I mean, over the years that I was uh, in graduate study, you know, between a master's and PhD, generally classes on Islamic law 
tended to do this kind of, you know, historic overview of Islamic law. Here's the, you know, the legal text, here's the legal theory, uh, here are, you know, sources of the law and things of that nature. And then you would have this sort of like, you know, one week on gender in Islamic law. And largely there, the focus was uh, to think about constructions of gender, uh, if that. And for me, uh, what arose from that scholarship that I was reading were much larger questions that I felt were not really being thought about or addressed through that literature. And, and of course, then, you know, there is this tendency to particularize studies on gender. And I think this is, you know, this applies to, you know, beyond gender, whether we're talking about gender or sexuality or race, there's this tendency to particularize that scholarship as really talking about this one thing. And so the only way that we can engage with it is first to particularize it, narrow it to that particular category and then discuss what's happening, right, in relation to gender uh, in the field. So if we're going to talk about Kisha Ali's book on marriage and slavery, we would really only talk about, you know, how is marriage understood by the jurists and, you know, and how does that produce particular kinds of legal rights for husbands and wives, but not really think about what does that mean for how it is that jurists were influenced by the world that they lived in, right? What does it mean to be writing uh, and thinking about the marital relationship in a world where enslavement uh, is a norm. And one of the things that, uh, you know, I think is really important that this literature raises is that it really gets us to think, A, about law beyond legal discourse. It gets us to question, well, when we're talking about Islamic law, what specifically are we talking about? And if we think about Islamic law largely as what was produced by jurists, then we are missing this vast landscape where that law plays out. And in fact, looking at the the fatwa literature or the court literature gets us to see that some, you know, that sometimes jurists were writing about certain issues that were not playing out in the legal arena, in particularly those ways, which, you know, I often then raise for students this question of, well, then how should we be reading the legal rulings? Uh, If the legal rulings say X, but we're seeing that the muftis or the qadis are not actually doing that, what does that mean for what, quote-unquote, Islamic law has to say, for example, about khula, a wife's ability to uh, exit a marriage, when we are seeing how it plays out in, in the courts? And the other thing, you know, that it, that it really gets us to think about is this dialectical relationship between legal actors like your jurists, the muftis, the qadis, and the people who are interacting with them, right? So one of the things that for me really st- stands out in this literature is that the law is actually produced through this relationship between these legal actors and the authority that they're claiming as interpreters of of the law and of God's will, and the people who are coming to them and are negotiating what that law means, right? So we have, uh, I remember in Yusuf Rappaport's book on uh, on marriage and divorce uh, in the Mamluk period, I was really struck by the story of this enslaved woman who comes in uh, you know, who has gone through divorce and is, uh, you know, arguing that her idda, uh, her idda period is over, you know, and, and, and says something that seemingly would, you know, it's like, yeah, I had this number of menstrual cycles in, in a time that would seem like, you know, this is not plausible, but it was like, okay. Uh, and, you know, so, so you can see the ways in which people, women uh, and enslaved people, right, children are coming to these people who are the vulnerable in society uh, who in many ways are not given the kind of legal agency that, you know, free adult men would be given, are coming in and are negotiating the law. And so looking at law and practice also gets us to think about 
the law as not just the, the product of the people who are quote-unquote producers of the law, but also those who interact with the law. I'd like to conclude this exploration of the history of Islamic law, kind of how we started, with a good story from recent scholarship that is changing how we understand the development of Islamic legal traditions. The following clip comes from an interview with George Washington University professor Joel Blecker, whose first book was on Hadith, or Sayings of the Prophet. The Hadiths themselves were collected in the centuries following the death of the Prophet Muhammad and have become more or less solidified. But as Blecker explains in this interview with me and my colleague Shireen Hamza, interpretation continued to produce volumes of material long after the corpus of sound hadith had been established. The title of the book is Said the Prophet of God, and that's almost always how a, a hadith begins. Qala Rasulullah said the messenger of God, said the prophet of God. And it usually has that what follows is a short statement attributed to Muhammad, something that uh, he said something that he did. It could be something very profound, uh, like one of the most famous hadith actions or by intentions. You know, this kind of uh, a very weighty hadith about. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or um, it could be something very simple. Uh, apparently, once uh, Muhammad he he loved to uh, brush his teeth with a wooden tooth stick called a sawak. He always had one in his ear. Apparently. Uh, one time one of his companions came up to him and asked him a question that had been troubling him uh, about some, some issue of Islamic law. And Muhammad replied, ra, ra, because he, had, uh, he was brushing his teeth while he was uh, speaking. Um, it could be something very mundane uh, attributed to Muhammad, something he said or something he did. Sometimes it could be a very long story. And then just at the end, Muhammad is present. He doesn't even say anything. And um, I should say, for those who don't know, there are literally hundreds of thousands of hadith that are circulating and variants um, concerning things Muhammad uh, said or did. It has really been the center, uh, not just of um, modern Western scholarship interested in the historical Muhammad, but it has really been the center of uh, enormous amount of Muslim scholarship. So when you say circulating, Maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about what that means, how hadith are circulated. There are usually two elements to a hadith. There's that what's called the mutton, the, the content, the text that describes something that Muhammad said or that he did. And then there's something called the chain of transmission or the isnad. And this is a way of guaranteeing the authority of the text. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's like a provenance, uh, like a historical provenance of the attribution of the saying or the practice. So in kind of very simple terms, you know, uh, a chain of transmission might look like Shireen heard from Chris, who heard from Joel, who heard from his grandfather, and so on, and so on, and so on, back to Muhammad himself. Hadith transmitters were not just interested in the the content, the mutton, as I was saying, but they were also really interested in preserving these chains of transmission. And over the first three centuries of Islam is where you see uh, a lot of activity um, concerning uh, the interpretation of these chains of transmission, trying to appreciate their relative authenticity, whether they were weak or fair or sound or whether they were forged. 
uh, Muslim scholars themselves were worried that forged hadith might creep into the tradition. Over uh, the first three centuries, there was this, this kind of period of culling, organizing, classifying hadith on all kinds of topics. Like I said, from everything from toothbrushing to matters of medicine to matters of law to theology, the end of time, governance, business. And so for that reason, hadith are such a rich resource for Muslim scholars of all kinds who, who are trying to draw on some, some kind of moral example and craft their own work and their own ideas. After that point, when we're talking about what, what some scholars are calling the post-classical period, after that, it's not so much about discovering new hadith or um, authenticating new hadith, although, of course, hadith experts go back and try to uh, reevaluate and reexamine the authenticity of these, uh, um, the, the hadith that have already been collected in those canonical works. But what really emerges is this, the question of interpretation. How, what it is that hadith means. So Muslims are agreed, for instance, that Muhammad said, Inma al-a'malu binyat, actions are by intentions. But what exactly does that mean? What is it, what, what kind of uh, moral claim does that make on uh, the community of believers? And I think this is, the, um, this is where we start to see not just pages and pages of written commentary, but hours and hours of oral lectures uh, towards students, commentary sessions. Um, as, at, at first, it's, it's actually described as tafsir, mm-hmm. uh, which is the same word used for Quran interpretation. And it's, it's these, these public, these live sessions where um, Hadith scholars are getting together and, and trying to make sense of what these Hadith mean. This raises a really interesting question of how do you study the history of an oral or performative practice um, when it's you know pre-modern, there's no archive, film archive for us to go to to observe. But you have pulled together a textual archive of performance or a textual archive of oral commentary practices. So I'd be curious to know what the earliest mention you've found of, of these kinds of oral uh, transmissions and gatherings of hadith are, and maybe you can read us one of them. Sure. Okay, so I should say that actually it seems as if the uh, oral lectures and the oral notes are as, are as early as the the collections themselves. That Bukhari apparently would give oral notes as he was reciting these hadith and transmitting them to his students. And I actually found a manuscript in Birmingham that contains a few lines uh, that discuss, that, that are attributed to Bukhari's kind of lecture notes on the side, which were later cut out because they weren't considered part of uh, the canonical text uh, because they were his, his kind of, his lecture notes, so to speak. Really the first instance of a, a kind of uh, a, a social reading that's been preserved and recorded is in um, uh, Muslim Spain or late Umayyad Andalusia. I came across this, um, this very famous episode actually um, that has to do with a, a, a figure who I write about named uh, Abu Walid al-Baji. Now uh, al-Baji was a Hadith scholar living in Andalusia in uh, the 11th century and he had traveled to Mecca 
to study Hadith. This is one of the premier places where you could study Hadith. And while he was there, he met another Hadith scholar who had come to Mecca from the other side of the world, from Herat, Afghanistan. And they each met each other in Mecca in this shared um, kind of meeting place where Hadith could be transmitted. And while Baji was there, he learned uh, uh, a great many Hadith with specific phrasings that he hadn't heard when he was a student in Andalusia. And um, one of the Hadith that he learned was a Hadith attributed to um, a, a, a Hadith about the uh, treaty at Hudaybiyah. This is a, another famous, another very famous episode. So you can see, I mean, we're talking about stories within stories within stories within stories. Um, but he he brings back this Hadith about the tr the treaty of Hudaybiyah, which is significant because it contains a phrase in it that suggests that Muhammad once wrote. And it uses this phrase in Arabic, فَكَتَبَ So Muhammad wrote. And again, the reason that's, that that is significant is that in the 11th century, the kind of theological understanding of what really the sincerity of Muhammad's own prophethood was that um, he was, he could not read or write in the sense that he could not have read the Quran somewhere else. He could not have taken it or borrowed it from the Hebrew Bible or from the New Testament or from some other text. And of course, this hadith about the Treaty of Hudaybiyah is itself about Muhammad's prophethood because um, the early believers and the, the Quraysh, the opponents that, he's been, that they've been fighting, are finally about to make a truce. But the one sticking point is whether or not to, to refer to Muhammad just as, as any other man of his time would have been referred to as the son of his father, Muhammad ibn Abdullah. Of course, the, the early believers thought that Muhammad should be referred to as the messenger of God. And of course, as the opponents didn't want Muhammad to sign his name or to kind of be on the, the treaty named in that way. Muhammad is watching the squabbling happening and he's getting more and more impatient and, and, and you imagine that he, he kind of finally got fed up with this, this kind of trivial uh, fighting and he, he took the document and wrote, this is what Muhammad, son of Abdullah, agreed upon and then listed the conditions of the treaty. Now other variants of the Hadith say that Muhammad actually ordered someone else to do it, that he ordered Ali or that he, he may have just ordered someone else, an anonymous companion to sign it for him. Or another one says that he just kind of smudged, he kind of smudged out uh, the messenger of God on the, on the pact. But um, for Baji, the most authentic phrasing was the one that said, he wrote, Fakataba. So he takes this hadith back to Andalusia. He's going around, he's teaching students, he's kind of cultivating his own, um, his own student following. And he ends up in the seaside town of Dini. It's a little port town on the eastern coast of Spain, and maybe some listeners have, have actually been there. He's in this little port town, and he's, he's giving one of these, these sessions for the tafsir of hadith, the in interpretation of hadith. And he's going through these hadith, and he gets to this hadith on uh, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And a student asks him, and here I'll read from my book, my translation of this. Uh, chronicle. So it was said to Baji by a student, to whom does the pronoun he refer to in the phrase he wrote? Baji replied, 
to the prophet. So it was said to Baji, he wrote by hand? Baji said, yes. Do you not see it stated in the hadith? The prophet took the document, and while he did not know how to write well, he wrote, this is what Muhammad, son of Abdullah, agreed upon. And apparently this particular interpretation was um, so uh, controversial or, or caused such an upset that there were actually riots uh, in the streets, pro- popular protests. There was a, a, a popular preacher who, um, who condemned Baji of unbelief and uh, claimed that Baji's commentary on this hadith was tantamount to a denial of the authenticity of the Quran or the sincerity of Muhammad's prophethood. Uh, there were public denunciations and condemnations uh, and curses of Baji in Friday's sermons. And there was even a poet whose name was Abdullah ibn Hind who composed a few, uh, few couplets on this. And I'll read these couplets too, his, his poetry. He writes, keep me safe from the one who gains the world but pays with his afterlife. Keep me safe from the one who says, the messenger of God wrote. People are pretty upset here. <laughs> it's just amazing. I mean, for me, and again, you have to imagine that couplets were kind of like the Twitter of its day in the sense that it's 180 characters long. It's something that's memorable, right? People can remember it. It can, it can, it can circulate and spread very quickly. And to me, it shows the way in which commentary really was a public practice, a social practice, uh, that it was very much engaged with the political context. When we think about commentaries, the, the kind of uh, stereotypical image that comes to mind is of uh, a scholar locked away uh, in, uh, in, in his or her room engaging the text, you know, one-on-one. Here, it's, it's very clear that the commentary was, was very much engaged with the public. When I say it's uh, political, it, it literally was, in the sense that the emir of Denia found out about Baji's commentary and actually wrote to various scholarly authorities in Sicily, in the Near East, to try to, um, to kind of quell the fiasco. And Baji himself ended up uh, writing a one-volume uh, one defense of his commentary on this hadith. So an entire volume sprang from uh, interpreting this, this, this one single hadith. And of course, Baji um, very deftly and brilliantly um, maneuvers in a way where he says, yes, I want to preserve and be faithful to the precise phrasing of this hadith. But at the same time, this is not a denial of Muhammad's prophethood. On, on the contrary, it actually affirms it, and it affirms the sincerity of the Quran. If you, if you want to really understand how he's able to do that, you will have to read my book. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And this, this really is, a, I think, a good example that shows uh, the ways in which there's both political and social stakes of the commentary, in the sense that Baji's own survival <laughs> was at stake, but there were also intellectual stakes uh, because he really cared about preserving the phrasing of this hadith. The history of Islamic law matters today because Islamic legal frameworks that began developing as early as the 7th century play an active role in Muslim life 
especially in countries where Islamic jurisprudence and precedents serve as the basis for modern law codes. What Muslims know about how Islamic law developed shapes the possibilities for interpretation today. What Muslims believe Islamic law was and was not changes what it can be. If you want to explore these questions further, we've got a lot of material on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com including additional audio and video, as well as a bibliography for further reading. I'm Chris Grayton. That's all for this first installment of The Making of the Islamic World. Join us in the next episode as we explore the foundations of the first Islamic empires and the social world of the Abbasid Caliphate. Thanks for listening.